January 28, 2018. It's a lot from Pedro Show.
For Pedro Show. Hey, brother man. Hey, how's it? Look at this. January 28th. Yeah, it's like summertime. And it's good. It's in the 80s. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, we started the show off with uh, Straight No Chaser, John Coltrane, when he was playing with Miles Davis. And then something new from Nasal Rod, The Commute, out of Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Matt, we're not alone. Here Hello. at the Love Grotto on the Pleasure Point. By the way, I had to park way down there. Your parking oh. is. Pretty stiff. Yeah, I know you nice. got the ticket the other week. Those fuckers. Yeah, but uh, we aren't alone through the magic of those engineers from Estonia providing the Skypeage to make it connect by the spit sticks. Welcome aboard. Hello. Yeah. Where you at? I'm in PDX. I, I live in Portland. Lived here for about 12 oh, years. Oh, no, but you had a good level. Now your level's all little. <laughs> How's this? Yeah, okay. look at that. You're like that? Like you manned up and grew a pair. <laughs> All right, like that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I figured you were in Portland because uh, you told me that. Because you've actually played in Pedro at Harold's place with Nasal Rod. I don't oh, yeah. know if it, was, if it was with my second man or missing man, but I remember sharing the deck with you there in front of the pool tables. Yeah, it was dope, man. It was, it was great. Under see. the NASCAR uh, lamp. Right on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know. It's amazing there's gigs at that pad. If you told me in the uh, 1990s and before, I would have never believed you. You know what the, the um, most popular pickup line in that pad was? No, what is it? Nice tooth. <laughs> okay. Spit, tell me, if you can, your earliest musical memory. My earliest musical memory... I probably was around three. My dad's drummer had his drum set set up in the living room, and uh, and at that age, you can't press fingers down on a guitar or blow a horn or play anything. But I grabbed a drumstick and hit this sparkle blue snare, and I remember it sounded like a pro, and it was sort of resonated with me like, "I'm good. I don't have to do anything else. I'm good." At three years old. Yeah. Okay, and. Uh... So, but you had music in the house. Your pop had a band. Yeah, my dad. Uh, my dad was a professional musician. My mom was a singer. My two older brothers are musicians, and uh, so everyone in my house took piano minimum. And then after so many years of piano, they they're like, "All right, now what do you really want to take? You want to keep going on piano, or you want to?" What about that blue sparkle I, drum? And by by that age. Uh, I think around eight years old. That's I chose drums, and uh, and they just totally supported me. Took me to I was in private uh, drum corps, and uh, they took me to every rehearsal. This is uh, spit. This is in SoCal, right? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. That, what part? Royal Cavaliers. Uh, what part? Band, private was, marching band. Was it the Val? Say it again. The Val? No, this is uh, Royal Cavaliers out in the valley. That's why I thought. Yeah, yeah. San Fernando Valley uh, listeners yep. out there. Yep, yep. And, uh, okay, because I, I know drum corps is intense. Uh, I've, I've read things Billy Cobham talked about. I mean, that was New York City, but I bet you the same thing. A lot of competition, a lot of discipline, a lot of practice. It is. It's, it's the, the, the warm-ups and those exercises that I learned at, like, 12 years old. I still, I teach drums, 
and I modify those exercises for drum kit, but they're evergreen. They last forever. They, I've used them to get into shape many times. I, I, when I quit Fear in 93, I hadn't played for a couple of years, and Dick Dale calls me in 95, and he says, I'm coming out to the East Coast. I want to do some shows with you. And I'm like, oh, crap, I haven't played in two years. I was so bummed when I quit Fear that I hadn't played. I was just studying digital audio and other things. So these exercises that I learned in drum corps got me in shape. I just practiced for two weeks, learned the songs he wanted me to, and probably played these warm-ups, and I was totally back in shape. So they're that's day, those exercises I learned then still work. Okay, let's let's go back there at 12. Uh, did you, on the side, did you do music? Besides the drum corps, did you start playing with friends, like in the garage? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. My older brothers, of course, played and wanted their built-in drum machine there. Uh, <laughs> and my, uh, my dad was really into jazz and handed yeah. me Dave Brubeck's record and said, try and play this. And my mom handed me a, a Jobim record, you know, with it had Bossa Nova drums on it, and she's like, play this. So those are kind of challenges I had at 12. Wow. And I learned how to play Bossa. The jazz stuff I played along with, some of those tunes on the uh, Dave Brubeck album, Blue Ronda Wolf Turk and things like that, sure. that were odd time signature stuff. And it kind of forged at an early age that, you know, don't take the easy path. And I still played rock, but I was more challenged by other stuff. Spit, do you remember the first record you bought yourself? Um, yeah, I bought it for my girlfriend. I house-sitted it for the summer. I think I was 12. And I got made was like the big year? bucks and bought the album Tommy for my girlfriend. Ah, <laughs> who? The who, right? Yeah. The who, yeah. Okay, do, do you remember the first gig you went to? The first gig I ever, well, I didn't really go to it, but I, I snuck in. At the Whiskey A Go-Go, they had this thing called Shindig, and they had go-go dancer booth, or uh, kind of cages on either side of the stage. And up along the roof, they had slide projectors just switching slides every couple seconds. And I remember just being in awe. And I probably was 12 or 13 at the time, too. <laughs> 12. And, and, and I just, I snuck in. My brother's band was playing. And I just remember looking at it like, God, I got to be a part of this. And I, that was my first memory of the whiskey. And I still love that place because of those connections. I'm, of course, playing with fear and shooting fireworks out the window. <laughs> with that place. You know about fear and the whiskey with the Minuteman. No, uh, uh-uh. uh. Minute, okay. The Minuteman was not allowed to play the whiskey go go because we were considered a violent SST band. Always. So it's actually we get to open up for fear. It was it was part you know, Durf and Lee and, right, uh, right. but also Rick Van Satin was there. He, oh, right yeah, he was selling T-shirts for the Screamers, but somehow he got involved with the, some booking. And so it was because of you guys that this violent SST band got to play <laughs> 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 the whiskey. And uh, it, it was very intense for us. So uh, I got to thank you. Also, the first Fender bass I bought, you know, you, in the old days, you bought everything through the recycler. Of course, yeah. That, that, it was a pink paper, people. You put the ads in for free. I think it was 75 cents in the 7-Eleven. All my cars, all my instruments, all my tools, everything I got out of that motherfucker. Yeah, it was kind of like the Craigslist. Exactly. Yeah. Very Kano. And, but all kinds of shit. Ads for bands, whatever. But anyway, uh, there was an ad there for a Fender P. And uh, Durf was uh, living on the beach uh, selling real estate. I think out of his parents' pad. And he sold me 
his Fender P. Well, one of them. He had a few of them. So I have a couple early, early connects with Fear That Way. But what about your, your what's your connect, how that all come about? Well, my buddy Bert, uh, my older brother's friend Bert, guitarist, uh, kind of their jamming buddy. They kind of had some little Stones kind of rock bands together. It was my older brother's thing. I wasn't into that kind of music at the time. And Bert said, uh, this is 1977, the end of 77, probably October, November. And uh, he said he's, he joined this punk band. And I'm like, punk? You know, so I thought it was come and gone. My brother and I were going to form a band called Spit, like in 76, when we heard the Sex Pistols. And we wrote a few songs that never came to anything, but kind of gave up on the idea of it. And then Bert said he's playing this punk band, and they're looking for a drummer. Their drummer's girlfriend didn't like punk, and they needed a someone who had gigs. So I said, so I auditioned, and it was a good fit, and I dug it, and, I, and it was funny. It was I dug punk because the music in 76 was pretty lame on the radio and squeaky clean and just leftover stuff from the 50s. And So I liked the, the Sex Pistols. And, rock and I thought I could play this kind of rock this is I could dig this so I joined and then within a week uh, Lee kicked Bird out which was awkward because he had gotten Philo Durf and I all in the band it was kind of Durf's connection to, to Bird so I kind of felt well I really want to play in this band but you're out so it was an awkward thing uh, for him to get kicked out pretty quickly but the, the four of us remained and, and started writing a ton of stuff immediately just was good energy together and I would I had the rehearsal studio I, sh I shared with Captain Beefheart my roommate Eric Feldman wow you live with Eric that. Drew Feldman yeah Kittaboo yeah I'm a yeah I'm a huge uh, f fan he's a great cat and uh, yeah. Th yeah that that era of the captain okay th that's because I read the Mike Barnes book you know and they talk about that practice pad because yeah. he, he, actually, he's brought in for, with uh, the, the guitar man, uh, Jeff Tepper. Jeff Morris Tepper. Yep. They talk about this thing where they actually sneak into Eric Drew Feldman's bedroom. He's still living at home. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Like well, the first He was my week. roommate for a while, so he, he had okay. moved out. And then he was my roommate, so I would jam there after their rehearsals. So I'd go hang out, listen to the end of the Beef Heart rehearsals. And sometimes Don and I would just start talking, and then I'd just skip the jam, and Don and I would go out to Bob's Big Boy for like three hours and drink coffee and blab. <laughs> wow. so, uh, this is around the shiny beast, uh, shiny beast period, right? Yeah, yeah. So I tried out for his band because he dug me, and he goes, you got to try out for my band. And it was right before Robert Williams actually got the gig. Ah, Frost, yeah. Frosty had just gone out. And that's right, because Drumbo went to guitar for Doc. Yeah, that's right. So Don asked me to, to audition for his band, and about two songs in, he laughs and is like shaking his head. He's like, no, it's not going to work out. You're turning my shit into pop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I, don't... <laughs> I did, because I, you know, I wasn't in that kind of, now I could do it. Now that the mindset, I understand totally, but at the time, I just was kind of like, I'm concentrating on groove, because <laughs> was my thing. Yeah, yeah. Th th I mean, that music was incredible. <laughs> Straight yeah. I mean, Jeff joined. Jeff was uh, Eric's buddy and used to come to the shows before he was in the band. And he didn't even play an instrument. He was just a fan. And, and Don liked that. He would just, If he liked it, he's like, you got to join my band. You know, I, 
you know, if you'd like your energy. And that's what he did to Jeff. Jeff's like, I don't play guitar. And he's like, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> A piece of clay. Let's listen to some uh, nasal rod. This one's called Watermark. Oh, 
we sat down, and her anger slowly receded as we talked about the day we first saw each other in the university library. We were studying at separate tables when our eyes met and a current of electricity passed between us. And we knew at that instant that a life partnership would begin and that we would remain together forever. And two days later on the altar of love, we swore allegiance to each other. And then we began to reminisce about cherished moments in our marriage. The time we fell asleep on a beach and our car was stolen and we had to hitchhike home. The time we thought we were going to see an elaborate production of King Lear and it turned out to be a puppet show. The time a Japanese woman with one arm drove us to Mexico City, lost control of the car, and we crashed into a taco factory, setting off an explosion of beans and cheese. The time we went to the nursing home and found my father lying face down in garden soil, having caught his foot in a croquet wicket, still holding his mallet. mood in the room changed to wistful nostalgia, to a sense of lost possibilities. And she said, what happened to us? We were so happy. We were each other's best friend. And then you had to go off with Maria. Was it worth it? You, you gave up this marriage that had everything. And for what? affair with a cheap slut and I wanted to say but she's a tenured professor of sociology at Princeton she's published in her field but I didn't say anything and then we went to the bedroom equation and then the doorbell would ring. My ex-wife would appear before me soaking wet and change into a terry cloth robe behind a screen and we'd argue about the divorce settlement, drink a glass of sherry, reminisce about the past and make love. And I wondered, how can this happen every night in exactly the same way? And at first it was shocking distressing, then troubling, and then, for a while, weirdly amusing. And finally, it became a nuisance. Night after night after night, the same events in perfect replication of each other. Was I losing my mind? Had I fallen through a crack in the space-time continuum and unable to free myself 
Was I doomed to repeat again and again throughout eternity, like Sisyphus and his stone, the same set of scenes? Or was it a dream from which I would never awaken? And should I adopt an existential attitude, embrace it, love it, make it a part of me in order to transcend it? Should I fight it? Because I'd never been married. I didn't know this woman. I'd never seen her before in my life. The next morning, we'd get dressed and I'd say, can I give you some money? And I'd reach into the jar on my night table and hand her a few dollars and some change. And then I'd give her my F. Scott Fitzgerald first edition of The Great Gatsby and my Sung era Chinese horse casting in bronze. And then she'd leave. But another night had passed and you can't see the universe through a telescope during the day.
sit by me. Give me all your loving and your electricity. The waves will crash and the buildings will burn. Central Tower will crush my elementary school and the kids will never Thank、you
something out the door Yes, it is me out the door Yes, it is me I'm knocking to Satan אני מוכן להישבע שלפני שתי דקות ראיתי אותו משתין מתחת לעץ הזית, פניו מוארים בהקלה. הוא כפתר את מכנסיו במהירות, והידק עליהם את החגורה. טיפות שתן התגלעו במעלה הירך.
mere complication And it's a lonely child Serve my reputation It's something for the wild I know it serves me right But I can't sleep at night I have to hide my face go some other place I won't fly out for justice Admit that I was wrong I'm saving high relations My name is really Bird I'm up to here in life I guess I'm down to size Can't seem to talk about the things about me Seems to be whatever I have show we heard a uh, watermark nasal rot then joe frank we'd lost a couple weeks ago the just an ordinary man guided by voices with D- deflect project isotope 217 new beyond that's got out uh, john hurden great drummer man we talked to last week uh san francisco apocalypse part one by maya and the revolutionary hell yeah also from the city everyone is dirty with alien birth scene a super freak out of like Milano now, used to be a body, knocking. Uh, farther south, uh, Tel Aviv, the face of the dead, 1518 out of Italy. Slovak Velvet, finally Talk Talk from the brand new Nasal Ride. So uh, tell me about the first Fear gig you played. Let's see, the first, I think it was like either Bases Hall or Steve Samioff had set it up. And it was it was just one of those non-venue venues, yeah. as you know, in the early days. It was just anywhere you could get in without people realizing you're you're going to have punk music in there. Yeah. And and for me, it was like I had played some jazz clubs and done a little bit of touring out of high school, just playing restaurant bar kind of things, playing bossa nova with people's looking at people's backs while they're Challenge. sipping drinks. <laughs> so it was a nice. Uh, change to see the audience really uh, engaged and 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 actually moving around. And in those days, of course, first gig, I think it was in February or so, 78, uh, people were just pogoing. It was just jumping up and down, bumping Yeah, no butt. slamming yet. Nope, it wasn't the pit yet. And it was, and for me, it was really entertaining. It, yeah, I like pogo too, because everybody had their own space. Exactly, and if your homies are with you, you bump into them because you know yeah. them, and they bump into you. But right. that's about as far as it went. Right. And plus, I had before I played that gig. I remember going to the the mask on Cherokee and seeing controllers, and uh, and then I saw the weirdos. I forget where I saw the weirdos, but I saw some bands, the Dills. I saw some bands that were totally inspiring, 
super high energy, and I just felt that I was at home, you know, and I didn't care about, you know, some of the gigs weren't really packed with people, but it was the, what was, we were playing on stage was way high energy compared to anything else really that I'd done, maybe some fusion, but fusion kind of has some easy moments too, so what, the punk stuff was pedal and metal, and yeah. I dug it. What, what about that first single? That first single, I had just joined the band when, when that thing got pressed. Johnny Backbeat was the drummer. Yeah. And Leeds. It was a trio at the time when they recorded that. Okay. And uh, that thing got pressed, and then Johnny Backbeat's girlfriend decided... She didn't you know, like punk know, music, and he had to get out. On, so he, he bails, and then Durf is like looking for drummers. In doing so, he comes across Bird, of course. That's one right. of his buddies. And, uh, and then... Bert recommended me, so I don't, I don't know if anyone was uh, auditioned before me because it was. I just remember getting the call and going, "Yeah, I'll do it," and and I was I was over at Lee's house playing in his living room and it was a fit. So, and the next uh, the next record is the album. Yeah, the next time we recorded, um, actually was not the record, but uh, on the Decline soundtrack. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, which is a gig. My girlfriend uh, at the time, Susan Moore, who I ended up having a kid with. Uh, was booking, she was a realtor like Durr, and found that bowling alley, that the arena that uh, that was filmed in. So she was pseudo-managing Fear for a little while there, and got us into that gig, which was set up to record. Remember Gary Hursties was sure. working sound. Sure, and sure. It, was, it was just a regular gig, but it was recorded, and that, be that became a record, and of course, Belushi saw that, and uh, uh that ended up, we ended up getting signed on Slash shortly after doing Saturday Night Live. Where did you record that out, the, the record? Sound City. My, okay. my brother had actually worked at Sound City, so I had a lot of experience there. And uh, on downtime, you know, I'd just bring my drums in and, and we'd goof around on the nice neat board and studio machines and we kind of free run of the place after hours, so... It was, it was a place I was familiar with, so when we were talking about records, we got a good deal for a block time there, and uh, when we walked in the, the, the studio in the control room, when we got there, we smelled dog shit, and, and there's Rick Springfield cleaning up his pit bull shit in the control room. Like, Thanks, Rick. <laughs> But I actually did spill a beer on that console accidentally, so I actually, and I heard pops and clicks, and Gary Lubo was frantically pulling the modules out, trying to dry them before it fried the board, but... Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> what, what, you, who ended up mixing that record? What'd you think of the sound? At the time, Gary's like old school rocker, and myself, I wanted more bass. I'm all about low end, and... And he was afraid to put it, as so many engineers back in those days were. Yeah. To they, they, what they'd say is, like, you're going to make the record skip. You can't put that much bass. That was the fear that all these engineers in those days had. Vinyl, I guess, had there's people too late realized at the lacquer stage or at the vinyl stage that their records were skipping. So that was the big fear. So he kept rolling off the lows. That was my only objection. I would have cut things more live. Some of the guitars were overdubbed and I'm really against overdubbing. I but, just, but the record was done again. 
Oh, that's, yeah. That was kind of cut and pasted again. That was he wasn't done again. Lee said he wanted, to me, he says, I really wanted to spend more time on my vocals. I only got two weeks. Yeah. This one I was able to take two years. So, okay. You know, if you say so, it's like why? Was, I, I, I can't agree with that, and I don't. I didn't think it sounded good. It sounds very overdub, and there's just psychic energy in the room when a group of musicians are playing together. You Absolutely, can't yeah. duplicate that connection that you have with the people in the room on overdubs. And for, example, uh, for example, for example, Spit. We yep. were talking about Cat Beefheart and the Shiny Beast. They had to re-record that album. Oh, word? Why? Because he was signed to two different labels, both Virgin and Warner Brothers. So, Bat Chain Puller, Shiny Beast. Yeah, it's... Actually, things change, too. But but, uh, Jeff Morris Tepper, I heard him talking about, you can't recreate a thing, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No way. You can just do a live record. That's what I would have suggested. Just do a live. Do it well. Do eight, ten shows and pick the best of, but... You know, that's where, to me, that's where recording is. It's like, okay, you can overdub a little bit of vocals, I think. That's cool. But the actual core of the band should be one unit, all connected when you're performing. So, yeah, I just, I'm not a big overdub. I mean, I can do it, and some people are like, I'm a master of overdubbing, but I, I do it minimally. If you had your choice, you'd rather not. Mm-hmm. Just capture it. Capture it live. Right, right. Well, you know... The way I see it, Spit, you grew up in a world of music that was done live by real people, your family. Yep, yeah. I mean, programming, I, I, I have a record out that I put out in 2002, drum and bass record, that I became a master of programming and MIDI composition. I did film scores and documentaries and TV commercials. So I know and I, I respect it, but I prefer to have live musicians in the room. Here, here. We've reached the end of the first hour, 2018, January 28th edition, Waffle Peter Show, special guest, Spit Sticks. Hold tight for hour two. January 28th, 2018, it's the second hour of the Waffle Pedro Show. Oh, <laughs> 
honey bones Pineapple hair I take you out You play with my hair Laying out inside your room Listening to disco doom Making shadows on the walls with our hands Oh honey bones Pineapple hair You're a thief in the dark Oh I'm a puller of pen And it's okay just let me know If you don't wanna meet me at the show Is this what you really want? But just pretend.
show we start off the second hour with nasal rod doing blowing smoke then uh nano face with uh rng unlux cambia dmf ass ss space systems fukaku no ice change your mind spirit valley honey bones here lies man with belt of the sun disorder with unravel and finally nasal rod with wage slave uh, special guest here, Spit Sticks, talking about his journey through music. Now, how many years you did with uh, Fear? Something like 15? 78 to uh, 93. So 15 years? Yep. Yeah. For 15. What was your favorite recording? Oh, gosh. You know, it's like some of them uh, were, you know, you always try for the perfect take, but on the, the first Fear record, We Destroy the Family, second, the sec, first one, second side, is one of those that just got nailed perfectly. Yeah, oh, man. That's like... It's, it's one of those... Punk I mean, ba- it's, it's like Punk Beethoven. Punk Beethoven. <laughs> punk it, Beethoven. It's like first take, just the way we would rehearse. We would rehearse like every day for two weeks, so we were in shape for it. But it was yeah. just nice to get those sort of takes. Like You always strive for those. And it's like, sure. that one came out good. No overdubs. That's just what, what about the t- uh, were you at the point where you were using those for for Tom's for Tom Simmons drums? I used those for a while. I bought a kit in '83. <laughs> it was just you know you play all your life. And you're like, whoa, this is these things. I can plug into an amp and be as loud as the bass or the guitar. Really loud. When those things would come through the PA, it was kidney punches. <laughs> That's it was for drummers. Acoustic drummers can't turn up. <laughs> also, the attack is so quick, you know, the punch. <laughs> yeah, they're analog. They weren't digital, so there's no millisecond delay. It was instant. Yeah. But, you know, you're tired of them. It's like, okay, it was a nice thing. I, I played with them for a couple years and thought I was going to get all the session work for for as much as I coughed those things up. Yeah. did some work in Europe with Nina Hagen and did some recordings with them, did the second Fear record with them, then kind of just was burnt out of I just want to bring my acoustic kit. I want to bring up a rig and all this other crap. So, you know, yeah. it's the, the novelty wore off. And so when you left Fear, you went and did this programming for soundtracks and stuff in MIDI. Yeah, I started... I New mean, York, I uh, was it New York City? Yeah, I moved to New York in, in like the summer June of 92 and just got a job in a recording studio and cleaning points and Chinese food off the floor and crap and then at night I take the night shift and then I just spend hours 
uh, learning digital audio. There's a system called Sonic Solutions. Sure. It's a super high-end s- system at the time, before Pro Tools or any of that. And I was learning, teaching myself digital audio. So that's why I was in the studio. And eventually, I went into Sam Ash in, in Times Square, and one of the sales guys was talking about Pro Tools. I asked him, it was called Sound Tools at the time. That's I asked right. him where he learned it. Sound, says, actually, it was Sound Design before that, yes, right? Yes, Nerve was, yeah, the two-track two version. But they, there's a, a place next door where they digi-design, pre-Avid, had a place called Pro School, and it was 100 bucks an hour, but John Pearl, this guy who worked at Sam F., says he, he goes there free because he's a salesman. So, well, you know, light bulb went off my head. I thought, if I get a job here, I can get free Pro Tools lessons. So I did, and uh, I ended up making really good money. So I stayed and had vacations and benefits and 401. And I stayed for seven years and kind of met all the big players in New York City. And I quit there in 2000 and just started uh, doing my own thing, which by that point I had tons of clients and a lot of connects, and I was making really good money. So from the 2000 to 2005, before I moved to Portland, that's what I was doing. I was teaching music software, Logic, and doing soundtrack work and had enough money to support my own band, Soli, at the time, and it was perfect. I was living as an artist, and I only needed to work a few days a week teaching software to support myself. I was making good enough money doing that. So I loved it. I, I just moved to Portland after I had a kid, and she was about 18 months when I moved to Portland, and I just wanted her to be raised uh, out here on the West Coast. And uh, the na- nasal rod guys. Yeah, those those guys are are kind of a part of a clique of very uh, cool people that I met. Tom Potts, one of my uh, bass players that I auditioned for my own band when I first moved here, ended up not working out for my own band, but he and I started another project, different idea. So I met a bunch of that the network of those musicians through Tom. Uh, amongst them, Justin, I met, and then Justin started playing with that band, Lickety, so that became a trio from a duo, and then Justin uh, joined Nasal Rod, and I go to their shows when I wasn't working or busy, and do their sound and lights, just because I dug them. I just loved the power trio of chairman going out in front, so I just support them by just doing their sound and lights, and the drummer, eventually, who worked for Microsoft and had moved to Seattle, and I was there. And I said, you guys need a drummer? <laughs> and I started playing with him. And uh, I guess it was about five, six years ago. That's happening. Uh, so it was just a chance. Yeah, it was. But it was just, uh, Tom, uh, hooking up with Tom was just a way to jam. You know, sure. I, I join any jam. I have, I have no judgment or shame with jams. And sometimes it's pretty ranked musicians. And sometimes you get really some clever musicians. But... I just jam up for any reason at all, just so I can block time in my craft. Yeah, yeah. Whenever, you, whenever you're playing, you're practicing for the next time you're going to be playing. No doubt. <laughs> I, I love putting the time in. And people are blown away here that I would jam with them. It's, it's cute to see them, you know, so psyched and they got bragging rights. And, but to me, it's like, hey, I love doing this and I'll share it with you. But that, that just was a perfect out for me because no one wanted to hear drum and bass as what I really liked playing when I got here. And they all knew my, my background, so they kind of expected me to play some high-energy punk, not so much high-energy drum and bass. So I kind of merged the two, and I still do. I still put drum and bass into everything I do. It's kind of the 
one of those genres that I really dig and I love playing. It's it's at the end of my gas pedal and it's really complicated and proggy. So it's kind of <laughs> what I dig to challenge, keep myself challenged. Drum and bass. I remember Brother Matt bringing me to Viper Room to see uh, that, that England guy. Aphrodite. Maybe. Yeah. It was one cow with a lot of machines. And drum and bass. There was, I didn't see any drums or bass, but the, there was beats, and there was, it was intense. What I, think, I dug is listening to do you know? Program. Do you know I'm talking about a guy named Aphrodite from England? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep, Brother Matt took me to a gig years ago, right? And it was wild. I, I was very surprised. It's super minimal bass with all these giant holes where the drums peek sure. through. So to me, it was like massive bass, you know, shaking the glasses to <laughs> silent bass where the trebly drums at mock speed you know, <laughs> through. So it was production-wise, and I love, love reggae and dub, and I. But yeah, it's kind of like that. Except yeah. about 10 million times faster. Rumbles are nuts <laughs> anymore. But the bass lines are chill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes they're, they're lawnmower. They can get going. <laughs> okay, uh, now it's time for our own drum and bass man here, Brother Matt with his spin cycle.
tell you a little story about what happened to me. It can happen to you, too. If you're not careful. When a guy gets booze, you don't look so good. Look like no woman. You know a woman looks good like that. But a guy with boobs is just a guy with boobs. That's what he is. That's what he has. When your butt gets flat and your belly gets big and your legs get all skinny. Look like a frog. You get some extra chins. You know that don't look good. And your hair get all greasy from all that greasy food. This is what you look like now.
Brother Matt, thank you so much. Cool. What made you do, what inspired you to do what you just did us? Spit started it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got to, he mentioned Dick Dale, so I threw some Dick Dale, got some drum and bass in there, some fear. Yeah. So, so Spit did it. It was a great, great fucking uh, <laughs> plethora of uh, expression. Yeah, and I just saw David Lindley the other night, that's too, right. so that's why we got the man well, with boots. It inspired me much, so I drive up to Chinatown, be thinking of this cycle cool. in my head. Uh, Spit, I want to talk to you about, because we haven't really talked about your drum. Your drum style is very unique. Now, I imagine you can play probably any technique you want, but... Uh, I'm curious about inspirers on the drums for you. I think when I was looking for something beyond rock, my brothers were into the Who and the Beatles, of course, Stones, and it wasn't so challenging as a drummer, that stuff. Maybe some of the Who stuff, maybe like my generation or a couple things were like... Keith Boom. But I just was looking for something more challenging. Then I got into jazz. I found that the most challenging thing. Except I wasn't into bebop, and right about mid-60s, 66, 67 was kind of a, I was probably about seven or eight, and, and jazz was kind of straightening out, and that's where like fusion was crossing over from funk, and but it, Billy Cobham, Lenny White, those guys were an inspiration. I could not play as fast as them, but I wanted to, and, and I just would sit and I, my folks had a dollhouse. Lenny, uh, Lenny White, uh, Return to Forever? Yeah, that that album I just play along with. When I was in high school, I just my folks had we had a. What, what about this uh, Billy Cobham record? There's one called uh, uh, Spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Big influence on George Hurley. I think it's maybe the first time a drummer got a gold record. Yeah, yeah that's, great record. I think you're right. But he was he was a man. He was a big inspiration. I I worked with his brother Wayne as, at at Sam Ash out in Manhattan. Good people. So he comes from from good good roots. Yeah, I saw I saw Mahavishnu Orchestra play at the Long Beach Arena, and he was on the drums. Oh, right on. Yeah, he was pretty wild. He had three kick drums. He didn't play them all at the same time, but I like doing that too. I, I think it was, I think it was it. called uh, Vibes or Fibes or Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Fibes were the, the clear ones. Yeah, they were clear. That's right. And and he had he also had the octave thing with a, a many different notes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. That's fun. It's like just when you know how it is. You probably have more than one bass. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. Every um, guitar I know has at least what, what seven, you, ten guitars. What do you think of a? Yeah, right. I know. Shit hoarders, right? Jim Morrison said. General, I think Jim Morrison said generals or admirals and shit hoarders or generals and shit hoarders. Something like that. Anyway, uh, what what do you think of Don Bowles playing? I dug him. I mean, yeah, I, I, because I like you two guys, for, for us, me and D Boone and Georgie, we always thought you guys were. We knew you each had your own style, but you you had this thing that like nobody else in the scene had. What's I think the wrong was set kind of at an energy level. It was kind of like a muscle man kind of a mentality of like who's playing fastest <laughs> and can and can maintain it for more than thirty seconds. So it was, it was, that was kind of the goal. It's like let's have a five minute song at mock speed instead of just a one-minute song. Let's show them, you know, so th I think the wrong kept going up uh, and it became kind of athletic, which I dug. I, I Unfortunately, Durf uh, kind of fell by the wayside of that because he wasn't in that mentality at all, but yeah. we didn't realize at the time how, what a social butterfly he was and he was really responsible for the band moving ahead in the world because he lived on the strip 
he was there every day, knew all these people, uh, but we didn't appreciate his non-athleticism, and I think that's kind of why we, we let him go, because right at that time, the, the ante was, you better be athletic. When you get on stage, you're going to give it up and be totally drenched afterwards. So <clears throat> I think of, <clears throat> amongst drummers, there was a certain amount of spoken between like Robo and Lucky. Sure. And, and a lot of drummers at that time, George as well, all of us, I think, were kind of looking at each other like, okay, you know, it's there's no easy way out here. <laughs> we got to work our asses off. And that made us all, you know, kind of put a flame under all of us because we all had each other to answer to when we performed. So it was, it was cool. I liked the the competitiveness and the environment of competition, too. Yeah, and uh, my opinion, I like the ethic. Yeah, me too. Okay, we come to the end of the second hour, January 28, 2018, Dishwap Pedro Show. Special guest, Spit Sticks, stay tight for hour three. January 28, 2018, it's the third hour of the Watt for Pedro Show.
I'm not gonna tell you what to say, I'll leave that decision up to you. I'm not gonna tell you what to think, censorship is not my thing. I'm not gonna tell you how to act, well I've been embarrassed, facts are fact. But you cannot hurt me, and you shall not harm me, and you will not kill me. Melt down that metal, melt down that steel, turn it into something real, like love. Melt down that metal, melt down that steel, turn it into something real. Like air, like fire, like earth, like water. I don't know where the world is heading, human population bleeding. The earth is off its axis, infrastructure depends on taxes. Old age, new babe, office confrontation, form personality at the age of three. Now know more about the brain, technology drives me insane. But you cannot hurt. And you will not heal me, and you shall not harm me. Melt down that metal, melt down that steel, turn it into something real, like love. Melt down that metal, melt down that steel, turn it into something real, like air, like fire, like earth, like water.
Roll it, baby.
We started the third hour off with Nasal Rod doing Destroy, Collapse, Repeat. John S. Williams at Australia with Meltdown, The Manic Low. Jack Grisham, we had him on the show uh, yeah. a couple weeks ago. Some Girls Own Me. Uh, D.E.R. with Let Her Go. Uh, Can You Hear Me, Major Tom from David Gerard and Lutz Tunes. Uh, Flying Hair with Beady Eyes. And finally, Yafet Koto Made My Day, Nasal Rod. What's that title mean? Uh, Yafit's like a <clears throat> kind of a fan of the band. We love him and his vibe and his acting and his everything about him. And Chairman is like an encyclopedia, and he knows every movie, every line. He's like <laughs> okay. So, in inspiration to one of our songs, 
Yafit became the, the focus of it. And then <clears throat> the rest of us chimed in with our lyric ideas and melody ideas as well. So it's really a true, truly a band written song. Yeah. Uh, dr- dr- dreamt up by committee. Let's talk yeah. about this album. Now, this isn't the first Nasal Rod record because I remember playing some songs <clears throat> when we did that gig together. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about this album. How did it come about? You were saying off air that you spent a lot of hours. It's kind of your baby. Yeah, yeah. It, well, anything I work on it becomes, you know how it is, it becomes your baby. Yeah. But this, one, this was like a year of, uh, of writing, and, uh, and then we just booked time in a, in a place, left our gear for a couple few days, and we're able to take our time, take a uh, couple days getting takes or redoing takes. So we had a lot to choose from later. So having three or four takes a day on, on a song gave me a lot of choices, and I was able to pick the best take that way. Some of them we got within two takes, and we knew we had it. But some of the others were like, ah, oh, let's come back to that tomorrow. So we're the, the beauty of this, of doing it yourself, is um, I, was un, I wasn't really under any huge time constraint. And, of course, I have my own studio, so... I could take my time mixing something, playing it for everyone, having everyone take notes, and then getting away from it for a few days, coming back, and taking my time with it. So it took, you know, over six months to do because I was just taking my time. I'd work like crazy on it and get too close to it, but being it, I was doing it myself, I can put that song, and it's in the computer, so total recall for the most part. I have a few external things that I did not touching during that time but it's total recall so I can get away from a song work on something else come back and it's right where I left it so having that luxury really was I was able to really focus on details that would have slipped by had it under under a, in the studio with you know people tapping their watches so right that, you think that, you could spit you think you could have developed an appreciation for Lee Telling you that now he's got two years to do the singing. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I can, if you're taking two years and recorded all those songs twenty times, and maybe it would have turned out well. I think there's a lot of overdub. Okay, I, that was just an aside. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, the band you didn't really. Uh, Right in the studio, or did you use stuff that you were doing at the gigs? Yeah, absolutely. We we played this stuff all out. Nothing okay. right in the studio. Yeah. Maybe a last minute little change on a on a riff or something, but it was all really rehearsed and and played forever and manicured before we went in. That way, I was able to just cut live live vocals. I like cutting live vocals when I record bands, and a lot of vocalists are like, "That's not possible," but I do it. However, on this record, I didn't really keep any of the vocals because there was so much bleed from the rest of us that I really didn't use that. And that's the only overdub, really. The vocals are the only overdub on the record. There's a couple, obviously, production things were just in double guitar stuff, but the basic tracks are right, and that's what we built on. What what, what can you tell me about this song, Never Sleep, and we're going to play that next? Yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorites. That song kind of... Chairman and, and Mandy came up with uh, melody lyric ideas in that one, and I had been uh, playing a riff 
just for my students, a thing called a paradiddle tap, and it, just repeating it, and it just as an exercise, and that's right where I was at when I was, uh, when we were coming up with the riff to the song, Justin had come up with a riff in five, and my paradiddle tap idea was in four, so I modified it, so, uh, actually, no, no, I, my riff was a parad uh, displaced paradiddle beat that I had been playing that week, Justin wrote a five, uh, five eight part and paradiddle taps are five so I modified my exercise on the spot and we came up with that dope beat during the verse <laughs> of that thing and it and then the whole the rest of it's in five so it just allowed me to play kind of some clever upside down bass drum and snare stuff in the slow five part but the five eight part I was really proud of because I felt like this is a beat that's never been played before this is like <laughs> total fine and I love that about it and of course I love the hookiness uh, the song is kind of about that in-between state of sleep and, and waking, but it's also about losing loved ones through overdoses and some other stuff too, but it's kind of got a positive message. But the beat, for me, was like something that I owned, and I love doing that. And I did that with Fear. There's beats in Fear that no one gets right. I'm putting uh, <laughs> yeah. a book out right now. I just transcribed four tunes off the first fear record for notation that the drum shop that I teach out of revival is going to publish. And that, that book is going to be called diffusion, diffusion of useful noise or useful beats rather. And, uh, it's, it's funny looking back, transcribing what I was doing back in the eighties and nineties, as opposed to what I do now, I'm very left-handed oriented now, but some of those beats like in that song, uh, uh I live in the city. I hear the fill. And I still do that film. And even Lucky from Circuit Tricks asked me what he, I had to slow to, slow down one night and show him exactly what I did. But it's the same beat that I'm playing then, then that I still use now. So there, there's a lot of similarity what I did then, but I'm all about the left hand now. And teaching drums has been probably the best thing for my chops ever. Wow. Yeah, I read something. Buddha said, if you want to learn, teach. No doubt, dude. <laughs>
and you're going to die. She's going to die. He's going to die. That bully from school will die. Your mum and dad will die. Your great, great, great grandchildren are going to die. Everyone in this room and everyone we all know.
I don't want to go back. I play every day, and there's plenty yeah. of days where I play nine hours a day. I teach five hours during the day. No, no problem with the uh, carpals and that kind of stuff. No, nah, man, that's uh, great. Knock on wood, I've got no Same injuries. with me. Same I, with I me. I had a little nerve injury in my in my left middle finger from slamming my hand on the snare with a stick, yeah. and that was a short-lived thing. I realized that I was just trying to get too much out of that snare with my left hand. I was breaking sticks three or four a night on my left hand, so Ooh. I just went up to a bigger size stick. Okay. Yeah, when I start feeling any kind of pain, I just change the technique. Okay, that's yeah. over. I'm not going to play that way anymore because it hurts me. Exactly. Yeah. I switched to traditional. If my left hand's really hurting, yeah. I switched to traditional for that until it goes away. Okay, people, we, we just heard Never Sleep in Nasal Rod. This is the last music for this edition. Uh, hang and treat by Paranoid State. Spot with Suicide is Painless. Well, is that the tune to MASH, Brother Matt? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Spot. Out in Sheboygan. Uh, the Emperor's Vice Cream with I'm Gonna Die. And uh, same old story, Unit F. And finally, Better Prepare, Nasal Rod. Better Prepare? Yep. It's like, I think he's, people think that's about the apocalypse, but I think it's just about an introvert. I thought it was a good way to end the show. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my pop always said, have a plan B, have a Bravo, boy. You know, that truck in front of you, it has a blowout. You go in port or you go on starboard. (laughs) He wanted me to have backups behind the backups. Bravo's, Bravo's like 10 back or something. Uh, plans for the future, Spit. What, you, uh, obviously, teaching students, that's a great thing. And well, this, you got your nasal rod, but also solely, you're going to go oh, back to that? 
I may do another Soul Life project. I, it's just a natural thing. It's really easy, and I'd like to have like that big fat sine wave bass, wall of bass, and then dead silence, and have that contrast. I, I dig that. And there's not yeah. a lot of pop or rock music that that really does that. That really gives the space for the drums is, and leaves room for the listener, like Dub does, yeah. as drum bass does. So I dig it. That's something. You know, I'm not. I, I can't find musicians really to play it live out here, so I may do something a la drum and bass. I don't know. In the meantime, it filters through everything I do. I play it a lot. There's a lot of drum and bass I play in nasal rod, so. And that's the stuff that I listen to. Some of it's program, and I reverse engineer, teach myself how to play it, even though it's probably four or five overdubs. And then <laughs> I teach that to my students. So that's that's been a, a good way of keeping myself on musical fashion edge as well there's a new new beats that that some of these young programmers come up with not having ever played a drum kit that i've got to figure out how to do and that's a great challenge to me and it's, yeah. i love it especially those kick drum patterns I mean. <laughs> well, my right hand and right foot i i play opposite uh -huh. i play upbeat with my right hand on the floor tom downbeat with my kick drum and i get a i can do a double bass drum thing without a double pedal ah great so I, I figure out a way to do it. But this, I'm putting this book out, this diffusion of useful beats, is kind of a combination of everything I've been teaching for the last 10 years, as well as warm-ups I've been using for the last 50 years, mm -hmm. and four fear tunes. I got uh, four songs, Let's Have a War, Camarillo, I Don't Care About You, We Destroy the Family, notation. So it's the actual notation of what I actually play, because no one seems to get it right. And those are four tunes that other people have covered, actually some of them that other people have covered that they don't get it right. They don't realize it's an eight bar pattern, not a two bar pattern, or, or they just get the sticking roll. Well, I'm but glad I'm, you're clearing up no, the <laughs> mysteries. Clear it up. Because I think we fucked up one of your, your beats, too. Because uh, for the <laughs> tribute to the Repo Man, they had us do uh, my second man, uh, Let's Have a War. Yeah, yeah. And no one gets that right. Man, I that mean, that is such an intense <laughs> drum. I love it. I love it. But I have, I've, I've notated exactly. I was tempted to put in what I would play now, but I didn't. I was true to the original All piece right. played in. So it's exactly notated exactly. The document. I played it. <laughs> okay, advice. Last thing I always ask. Advice for somebody getting into this. You have students, so you must give some advice. Of course. I mean, just jam every possible situation and don't judge. You're going to, most 99% of the time, you're going to play with horrible people. But that's part of the exercise, tuning their bad vibe out and tuning into what you're playing at that moment. But just log in time on your craft and, and just jump in any jam you can, regardless of the genre. It's, it's log in time. And I do that. I'm definitely, I practice that myself and jam with every opportunity, every level of, of a player and a, most of the time as you know you know there's going to be one person in the band who's going to drag or one person's going to rush and that's part of the lesson just playing with people like that to learn how to compensate for their you know pulling you out of your groove and, and digging your heels in on the good feel not digging your heels in and saying I'm right fuck you but just like digging your heels in like this is the backbeat here's where we are so just playing with any and, and the other thing for drummers just Use your left. Don't don't use it as an atrophied T Rex. Yeah. <laughs> a little <Yeah>. vestigial. <laughs> That's good thinking. I love it, Spit. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you on the internet? 
Uh, uh, Nasarod's got a Facebook too. There's a Spitstick Facebook. dot com. Yeah, they'll find me there. Also, Facebook Spitsticks. I've got a fan page there too. Okay. Thanks so so much, Brother Matt. Always your essentially the Very cool. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thank you. And Spitsticks. Such a great fucking awesome. unique and individual and great example of how music is a fucking happening thing. Yeah, awesome episode. Life. Very cool. Everybody, Thank it's been it. a January 28, 2018 edition of Watt for Pedro Show. Keep your powder dry. Yeah.